if you've been around here any amount of time at all, you know that our family, we're, we're dog people by nature. Julie grew up with dogs. I grew up with dogs. Ever since Emily and Joseph were little, little kids in, at our house, we've had dogs in our home. And, and currently, we have two real dogs. Bo, who is the greatest dog God ever created, and Cooper, whom we really, really love. He's, he's a rescue. And then Julie has a little pseudo dog named Annie that we tolerate. But we have three of these I'm teasing. I tease because I care. We love Annie. You know, it was really sad about Annie. She's deaf. She's about seven. How old is Annie now? Seven? She'll be seven this summer. Um, Annie's seven years old, and she is deaf as a post. But somehow she hears when it's time to eat. She knows when the food is rattling around in the bowl. But anyway, we noticed a few weeks ago in our backyard a snake that was in our backyard. And and I say a snake as a statement of faith. We're hoping that it's a snake and not some snakes. And when we saw this snake, Julie and I said, you know, we need to make sure that we've got a plan for the dogs in case one of them gets bitten by the snake. So I called up our vet and asked, do y'all have like a, a snake bite kit for dogs? Is there something we can do in the event that they're bitten by a snake? And what I learned was really interesting. They don't have like a a snake bite kit that you administer or, you know, suck the venom out after they've been bitten. But there is a shot. It's an inoculation that dogs can get that if they're bitten by a poisonous snake will actually slow the effects of the venom in the dogs until you can get them to the vet and get them a shot of the antivenin. And so what happens is they, they get this initial shot and then a month later there's a booster shot and then Every year after that, they get another booster shot to make sure that they've got the antibodies built up against snake venom. Apparently, for all of our veterinarian advances and technology, we cannot completely avoid snakes or snake bites. But, everybody say but. But... We absolutely can take measures. We can take steps to protect and guard against snake bite and hopefully to avoid it. But in the event that we are bitten, there is help to be had. Since the very beginning of time immemorial, marriages have been vulnerable to venom. Ever since the very beginning, the very first marriage that ever was, there was a a snake that showed up on the scene with Adam and Eve. There, there was that snake that tempted humanity to jettison God's plan, to step away from the will of God, to step away from the love of God. And ever since then, marriages have been vulnerable to the venom of selfishness, humanity, and the fact that we live in a fallen world. Now, last week, as a church, we kicked off this series of messages called Fearless Family. Because the fact of the matter is that for everything that God wants to do in your life or in my life, as well as everything that God has designed and desires to do in this world, it is the family that is the foundation of all of it. Think about this. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the, the world, the whole world. So... If this world is made up of nations and states, and it is, then those nations and states are comprised of 
cities and communities. And those communities reflect and are defined by the families that populate them. And at the hub, the very center and core of every single family is this thing called marriage. Marriage is ultimately, ultimately, God's divine dynamic. God's divine dynamic between one man and one woman for one life to accomplish and fulfill his purposes, not only in that home, but literally throughout the world. And it's for that reason that God is so descriptive, that he is so direct all the way throughout the Bible in what marriage, biblical marriage, ought to be and what it can accomplish. Think about this. Marriage is laced throughout the entire Bible. If you go all the way back to the beginning, Genesis chapter number one, God creates Adam and he looks and he sees Adam by himself in the Garden of Eden and he goes, rut row, this ain't good. This is actually not good that the man should be alone. The boy needs some help. Would somebody help me preach? And it's in that moment, in that divine insight that God says, I will create woman to, to complete the image of God that humanity is created to bear and to represent in this world. That's in Genesis. Then you go all the way to the very end of the Bible in Revelation. It's in Revelation that the family of faith, those who have been saved and forgiven in Christ, are welcomed into the wedding feast of the Lamb, that the bride of Christ is joined in complete fellowship and union with the bridegroom, this same Jesus. So from Genesis to Revelation, there is this divine dynamic where the gospel informs, the gospel enhances, the gospel strengthens marriage. Now, when we say the word gospel, I think it's really important that we all get on the same page and understand what we're talking about. The, the best way to explain, the best way to remember the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel just means good news. John chapter 3, verse 16 is really the best way to remember that. It, it, John 3, 16 is probably the most quoted verse in the entire Bible. If you remember Monday Night Football in the 80s like I do, you saw it between the goalposts every time somebody attempted a field goal or an extra point. But John chapter 3, 16 says very simply, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son so that whoever believes in him will never die but will have eternal life. That's the gospel. That, that for God so loved, that this gospel, good news of Jesus, originates. It begins with God. He initiates the gospel in love. He so loved the world, and, and that, by the way, means you. Tell your neighbor right now like you mean it. That means you. Some of y'all didn't really mean that. That's kind of a good news thing. If, if you're telling somebody good news, kind of, hey, that means you. For God so loved you that he gave his only son for you so that if you would believe in him, you would have eternal life and never die. That's an amazing thing. But this, this gospel idea, this, this gospel reality is eternally linked to marriage. And so when we think about a fearless family, we have to 
first of all, think about a fearless marriage. But the fact is, you and I live in a world that, that can be really, really hostile to marriage. First of all, we live in, the, in, in a fallen world. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, sin has been present and has been real. We, we've all had to choose to turn away from sin and move toward God. And, and that, that sin, is it okay if we call it an infection? That, that sin infection in our lives can infect marriage as well. But, but second of all, the reality is that anytime you have two people getting married, you, you've got fallen people being married. It's not just a fallen world, it's, it's fallen people. So we've got a fallen world, we've got fallen people, and we've got a faithful God. A faithful God who is pro-marriage, who is in favor of what is possible between one man and one woman in one life, that God has ordained this institution to combat the venom of fear. Recently, the Huffington Post wrote, posted an article about the top five fears of marriage. The top five fears of marriage, why people are putting off or even staying away from marriage altogether. Number one fear of marriage, according to HuffPo, is divorce. It's rampant in our culture and our world, so people are afraid of it, so they stay away from marriage. Number two is adultery. People are afraid that if they get married, there will be infidelity in that marriage. Number three. Top five fears of marriage is repeating a parent's bad marriage. Number four is falling out of love. What, what if we get married, but then we fall out of love? And then number five, the top five fears of marriage is the fear of the unknown. I don't know that I really want to get married because who knows what's going to happen on the other side of the altar. And those fears are real. But it's against that backdrop of fear that God brings in the anti-venom that is the gospel. That God brings in this promise of hope, this promise of life, this promise of flourishing to any marriage that chooses to avail itself of what God ultimately wants for marriage. If you've got your Bibles, look in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31, the Bible says, a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. <laughs> this is a great mystery. But it is an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. So if you ever want to kind of go back to the basics, if you ever need to recalibrate your view or your, your picture of marriage, Ephesians 5.31 is the place to do it. 31 and 32. For this reason, a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and the two become one. This is a great mystery. You, you've got two people from different families of origin coming together to establish a home and to become one in mind, one in heart, one in body. This is a profound mystery. But ultimately, marriage is a declaration of the gospel. He says, what I'm talking about here is not just marriage. What I'm talking about here is about Christ and his bride, the church. That, that this is an illustration, it's a representation of the extravagance of God's love. So when, it, when it's all said and done, marriage ain't about me. Marriage ain't about you. 
As a matter of fact, right now, turn to your neighbor with a smile on your face and tell him, it ain't about you. Now, if you're sitting next to your spouse, hopefully you really were smiling. Marriage in God's economy is ultimately about God. It's about the gospel. It's about representing the good news of Jesus Christ accurately and well and beautifully and powerfully over time. Now, that's a phenomenal image, a great goal to aspire to. And fortunately, we're not left to our own devices. The Bible doesn't just say, hey, do this and good luck. It goes into some detail about how we make this happen. Go back 10 verses to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. In Ephesians 5, 21, the Bible says, and further, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, so before he starts to explain what marriage is all about, he says, bottom line, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, so first of all, this is an expression of worship out of reverence for Christ. But second of all, when you walk that wedding runner, you, you submit to another person. I want to let that just hang for a second. You submit to another person. You know what I think? I think, I don't know this, I think God put this in the Bible for people who are single. I think God put this in the Bible specifically to help those of us who are, like the Apostle Paul, not married. If you're not yet married or maybe you are unmarried, you've been married, this verse is there for you because you will save so much time, so much effort and heartbeat, heartbreak if you remember that ultimately marriage is about submitting to another person. That means you can eliminate about 80% of the people you would ever think about going out with. I mean, think about that for a second. Julie and I have been married for 26 and a half blissful years, and I still, still have to work at submitting to her. I mean work hard, bruh. Now, I hope that doesn't shock you. I hope you're not disappointed. Like, well, I need to find another church. My pastor, I'm just telling you, keeping it real, it's tough. And I trust her. Look, listen, I knew Julie for seven years before we ever started dating. Now, I don't, you don't have to go that route. But I do think when you understand that, that, Marriage is ultimately about submitting to another person out of reverence for Christ. I think what it means is you're wise, you are smart to date for a while before you walk the aisle. Date for a while. See them in a wide array of circumstances and situations. See how they handle different things. How does he talk to his mama? 
How does his dad talk to his mama? How does she talk to you when the chips are down and money's tight? It takes a while to get to know somebody. So, so when you remember, and, and I know some of you are thinking, well, Mac, I'm not, I'm not even thinking about getting married right now. We're just kind of hanging out. I, listen, I get it. But the fact of the matter is, the vast majority of people who live in America marry people they've dated. The vast majority. So be wise and discerning about who you date more than once. Out of reverence for Christ, submit to one another. Submit to one another. Look, Babies are crying. Just the idea of submitting. <laughs> but, but here's the deal. And, and, and babies cry because they don't understand what's available. Because, because while I still have to work at it, after 26 and a half coming up on 27 years, here's something I have noticed. Whenever I do submit to Julie, on those occasions when I willingly and knowingly and deliberately submit my wants, needs, and desires to her. Everything works better. Everything. Everything works better. By the same token, Julie has to work at it too. She, she, knows, she knows better than anybody my fallen nature. She, she knows my weaknesses and my shortcomings, but she still chooses to submit herself to me as I submit myself to her. That's why the idea of marriage as a 50-50 partnership is a joke and a recipe for disaster. That's not biblical marriage. Biblical marriage is not 50-50. Biblical marriage is 100-100. All in, both parties. That's when it works. When we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ out of reverence, out as an expression of worship. Now, in God's economy, in this thing called marriage, husbands play a different role than wives. Husbands have a unique calling from God that he gives to us. Look at what he says to husbands. He says, husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ Love the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or a wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault in the same way husbands ought to love their own wives as they love their own bodies. For a man who loves his wife actually shows love for himself. No one hates his own body, but he feeds, for, feeds it and cares for it, just as Christ cares for the church. So men, three things. Three things to do as a godly husband. Women, if you're single and, and looking for Mr. Right, you just kind of write these things down and just kind of keep them as a little list on you go, mm-hmm, we'll, we'll see. But men, number one, 
If you're going to love, if we're going to love our wives as Christ loves the church, number one, serve to lead. Serve our wives to lead. I've said for years and years and years, men, you can't manage your wife. And I don't mean that it's a bad idea. I mean you can't. It's a capacity issue. You can't do it. So don't even try. If you want to be a godly husband, you want to be a godly leader in your home, then you start by serving. Jesus, the King of Kings, washed feet. Now, Jesus led also. Don't, don't miss that for a second. But it, it starts from a posture of how can I help you? How, how can God love her through me? Well, what does she need right now? Where, where is she coming from? How can I serve her personally, relationally, spiritually, physically? Serve to lead your wives like Christ serves to lead the church. Number two, own relational safety. Own relational safety. You want to communicate love to your wife in a way that resonates with her? Make sure that you are a safe place for her. That your home is safe, obviously physically, but also emotionally, also verbally a safe place, that you are a haven to her. You own that as the man of the house, that you're there to provide safety in every way imaginable. Number three, initiate intimacy. And it's not what you're thinking, guys. When the Bible talks about intimacy, it is not limited to physical physical intimacy. It's not limited to the act of sex in marriage. Intimacy means unity. It means oneness. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Date your wife. Ask her what she's thinking. Talk to her. Share what you're thinking with her. But you initiate intimacy. You you pick up the phone and call her from work. Pick up the phone and go, hey, Will you go out with me Thursday night? Man, what, yeah. Date your spouse. Date your spouse. I, I've got a great friend who says, for some reason, men, after we get married, our tendency, if we're not careful, our, our tendency is to retire our spouse-winning jersey and hang it from the rafters. <laughs> Look at that. I remember when I used to put that on. I used to shower and brush my teeth, too. Date your mate. Pick up the phone. Ask her out. Set up the child care yourself. What? Yes. <laughs> Physical intimacy. Hand-holding. For the sake of hand-holding, not on the way to something else. Initiate it. Remember, we're talking about submitting to another person. So we serve to lead. We own relational safety. And then we initiate intimacy. Wives, you have a unique role to play as well. You have a unique opportunity to speak into the life of your husband. 
This is what the Bible says to wives. For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. That's what it means. It's there in the Bible. For a husband is the head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so wives should submit to your husbands in everything. Now remember, God has already put the initiative on us on the husband. The husband is to lead by loving as Christ loves the church. So wives, if your husband's doing that, then you're only submitting to your own best interests. When the church submits to Christ, Christ doesn't lord it over the church. Christ doesn't go, hey, remember, I'm in charge. <laughs> Christ loves, Christ serves, Christ leads the church. So wives respond to that from their husbands and submit to their husbands as to the Lord. Again, this is an expression of worship. Women trust the Lord in trusting their husbands. So, so wives, three things to do. Number one, serve your husband to encourage, to, to build courage into him. Serve him. Lift him up. Tell him he's great. Listen, the male ego is real. Don't fight it. Use it. This is an opportunity. Honey, you are breathing better than any husband on the planet. I can't believe how well you're breathing right now. And I'm telling you, watch him. Thank you. Appreciate that. Now, I'm obviously making a point, but feed the fire wherever you see an ember. Fan it into flame, ladies. Encourage. Courage is a big word for a man. Courage comes from the old French word that means heart. When you serve your husband, when you lift him up, you, you give him heart. You encourage him to go out and fight another day to be the man God's created him to be. Serve to encourage. Number two, own relational honor. Own relational honor. Just as a man is to own relational safety, the wife is to own relational honor. Whenever your family, or your friends, or, or your husband hears you talking about him, man, they, they ought to think you got the last great one on the planet. And again, when you lift your husband up, when, when you talk good about him, when you talk him up, it's built into us to respond to that. It's built into us to, to like that and to want to do more of what you're doing and talking about. But honoring your husband is an incredible, incredible opportunity for you. Because the fact of the matter is when he asked you to marry him, without even realizing it, he was saying, I want your respect. I want your respect. So if you lift him up in honor, you will make him more who God created him to be. So own relational honor. And then number three, ladies, initiate intimacy. And that means exactly what you think it means. I'm just, I'm just telling you. It, it just does. We really are that simple. 
I know early in our marriage, Julie would ask me, go, so, so that, if that, if I initiate that, then that makes everything else better? I'm like, yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's just, just, it, it covers over a multitude of sins. I don't care about dinner. I, I don't care, you know, hey, but I'm just telling you, that, we're good. And, and again, don't fight it. it. It just, and I know some of you are like so disappointed right now. You're like, oh, really? Yeah, really. Julie asked me, she's like, what are you thinking? Nothing. She's like, nothing's going through your brain. I'm like, well, one thing, but I mean, you already knew that. We, we really are that simple. And that's okay. It's part of our charm. But again, that is how we receive intimacy. That, that's how we feel connected and close to you. So you go out of your way and you want us to mow? I'll, I'll mow all day long. I, I don't care. But you see how God wired this thing up? You see the creative genius of male and female. Male and female is not a minor deal. Male and female is a big deal. It is the image of God in men and women that were created to bear and to carry. And in marriage, we represent, we retell the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel of Jesus Christ supports and sustains and strengthens marriage. Again, it's this eternal, divine dynamic that works so powerfully and so beautifully because ultimately it's not about us. We, we, we receive the fringe benefits of it, but it's ultimately about God. And so we honor that and we celebrate that. I, I kind of think that's why God says what he says in Hebrews chapter 13. In Hebrews chapter 13, God says that marriage should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. You see, marriage should be honored by all. All, everybody, everybody. Because ultimately, marriage is not just about marriage. It's about God. It's about Jesus and his love for people. And so, this whole time we've been talking about marriage, we've actually been talking about the gospel. We've actually been talking about the difference that Christ makes in a life. You see, it's one thing for, for us to read John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, but it's another thing to personalize it, to appropriate it, to say, for God so loved me. He, he so loved me that he gave his son, Jesus, to die on the cross so that if I would believe in him, if, if you would believe in him, we would never die. But we would have life that is truly life, 
right here and right now and forevermore. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a moment. If you're here today and you've never stepped into that gospel reality, we want to give you the opportunity to do that. Just, just to pray right where you're sitting. We, you might have thought we were talking about marriage, but ultimately we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about Jesus and you. And the fact that God so loved you that he gave his only son so that if you would believe in him, you would have eternal life and you would never die starting right here and right now. If you want to step into that relationship with God, then we invite you just to pray right where you're sitting. In your own words, just to silently pray right there. Just say, Jesus, I need you. I confess my sin to you. And I claim, I accept your forgiveness. Jesus, I accept your promise of a new life. And I will follow you from this moment forward with everything that I've got. Jesus, thank you. Thank you. I want to ask you just to remain with your heads bowed. But if that was your prayer, I want to make sure that you understand this is the greatest moment of your life. And you're surrounded by people who want to help. Who want to share in that moment with you. And so if you'll do just a couple of things. Number one, if you would fill out that connect card that's in the program. Just, just right now, just if that was your prayer and you stepped into a relationship with Christ, fill out that card and indicate there, I committed my life to Christ this week, about halfway down the card. And then once you finish that card, if you'll tear it off at the perforation and just hand it to one of our ushers on the way out. Or you can stop at the blue canopy that's out underneath the big front porch out here. But then second of all, as our heads are bowed, would you just raise your hand? Just quietly but unmistakably, just raise your hand and hold it up high for a moment to physically stamp this moment, this spiritual moment in your life and into the life of this church. As I said, you're surrounded by people who want to help. We're better because of you. And so as you put your hands down, we put our hands together just to tell you, welcome home. Welcome home and welcome to the family.